Um, good morning. Uh, may it please the court, counsel. Counsel, if you'll come a little closer to that mic. Oh, I'm sorry. And Is this better? There's a button on the side of the podium to your right that can raise. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you. Um, good morning. I'm Brian Marty. I represent the appellants and the cross appellees uh, in this case. A whistleblower sounds the alarm. He does not echo it. That's this court in Hayes versus Hoffman. Um, a, a perfect distillation of the public disclosure bar um, section of the False Claims Act. Now, the False Claims Act incentivizes citizen participation in blowing the whistle on fraud on the government. But the public disclosure bar closes the door to what this court has called opportunistic plaintiffs who don't add anything to the disclosure of the fraud. And that's this case. That's what we have here. Dr. Grant, the plaintiff, got copies of two Medicare audit letters that um, alleged overbilling of new patient visits and established patient visits on the part of Dr. Zorn, the defendant. Uh, he took those allegations from those disclosures, used them as his substantive allegations of overbilling in his complaint. He attached the CMS letters, the Medicare letters, to his complaint as support. And that's exactly what the public disclosure bar precludes. Counsel, wasn't Grant the first one to allege fraud? Um, sort of. Um, and that's a good question. Um, in the district court's order on summary judgment, that's what the district court said, is that Dr. Grant was the first one to allege intent or uh, False Claims Act specific scienter. Uh, but that's not the standard in this circuit or, uh, to my knowledge, anywhere else. But um, wouldn't, wouldn't all of the elements need to be there in order for there to be a problem uh, for the uh, whistleblower? Uh, yeah, that, no, that's a good question. Um, in, in this circuit, um, uh, from CSL Bearing, the court has said that um, all that's necessary is that the transactions in the public record or in the record that's disclosed need to raise a reasonable inference of fraud. So if we look at, uh, and there's a number of, of cases from the circuit where this court has said the public disclosure bar applies where nothing at all is said in the disclosures about intent or um, um, an, al an express allegation of fraud. What, what authority are you referring to? Sure. CSL Bearing, uh, Paulus versus Stryker, Cracksburg versus Kansas City Power and Light, Hayes v. Hoffman. Um, and uh, so an express allegation of fraud is not required to trigger the bar, um, just that the transactions that are disclosed raise a reasonable inference of fraud. How do we know a reasonable inference of fraud is raised? Well, um, because Dr. Grant did exactly what Hayes did um, in uh, taking his allegations right from the disclosures and using those in his complaint and then attaching those letters to the complaint. That's exactly what the court said. Uh, but the disclosures talked more about um, billing problems and we want to educate your staff and that sort of thing than they did about alleging any type of intentional fraudulent activity. That's right. Um, one of the Medicare letters, though, actually looked at um, a sampling of patient records, um, went through the records, determined was the code applied to that particular encounter um, accurate or not, said it was inaccurate most of the time, um, which were the allegations in, in this lawsuit. Um, the... Um, um, I, I, again, I don't... I don't uh, the standard just isn't an allegation of fraud. Um, 
Dr. Grant has argued on appeal that these were, that these were education letters and not audits. Um, I think that's sort of a semantic distinction without a difference, I th and, and I think they can be education letters and audits, frankly. Um, what, how did they refer to themselves? Well, um, I don't think they referred to them as, as either. Um, but an audit is a formal examination of an organization or individual's records, which these clearly were. So they can be both education letters and audits, um, or a report, um, which separately is subject to the public disclosure bar. Um, but even an audit doesn't imply fraud, doesn't lead to an inference necessarily of fraud. Well, could just I, be an honest mistake. Somebody doesn't understand how to code the proper category to bill. Sure, and I think it's it's probably a spectrum of of honest mistake to inference of fraud. Um, in this case, the district court, in its summary judgment order, said that um, the letters disclosed a suspicious pattern in his billing, which was billing that was. Um, fairly wildly outside of the norm for doctors in his practice, uh, in his specialty, um, combined with, um, well, when you combine that with the fact that there were two of these letters, one in 2016 and one in 2018, of course, um, Dr. Grant alleged and has said to this court that um, Dr. Zorn's intransigence in the face of this education was indicative of fraud. So certainly that second letter, a year and a half later, um, which was the audit, which actually uh, was, was after the audit of patient files, <clears throat> excuse me, um, would rise to that level of uh, giving us a reasonable inference of fraud. Um, so I think the district court erred, and this is where the district court erred, is applying a different standard that's just not, not applied, um, requiring ex an express allegation of fraud on its face in those letters. Um, which there wasn't, but which isn't the standard. Um, I don't think the court has to go any farther or any further than Hayes versus Hoffman here on the public disclosure issue. Um, in Hayes, the, the DHS reported issue was disclosed to Hayes. That was the public disclosure. And then Hayes turned around and used it in his, in his complaint. Um, one thing in Hayes that's not here is that Hayes was an original source of at least some of the allegations in the disclosure. Well, doesn't Grant have some uh, personal knowledge uh, of what was going on, having worked there for the number of years that he did, and uh, that he was a source of, of, the, of aspects of what was taking place? Well, on the first aspect, yeah, he certainly did have his own personal knowledge, but that doesn't satisfy the original source exception. For the original source exception to apply, the, um, the plaintiff has to um, voluntarily provide his material evidence to the government before filing a lawsuit. And that evidence has to, or that information has to materially add to what's already in the public disclosure. And he fails on both of those fronts. Well, wouldn't his... Uh, intimation or at least statement uh, or, or statement about the intent of the misbilling have added something to the public disclosure? I don't think so because um, at that point, um, you know, intent in a fraud case is, is circumstantial in every case. Um, so he, as much, he was inferring fraud from those 
that behavior that was disclosed as much as we would be inferring it from those records for purposes of considering the exception or the public disclosure bar. So wait a minute. He, when this case was tried, the relator um, relied solely on the anomalous, you know, statistical anomaly. Didn't, did he also add anything about, I had discussions with, with the other doctor and we agreed to, or so he was telling people to code up, that kind of thing? Yeah, um, he, he did. Um, but does that materially add to... Sure, it does. Um, it adds direct evidence of intent. Well, um, it, it, I think it adds color and detail to what's already been disclosed, which is... Well, the anomalous, the anomalous, you know, billing in and of itself could have been a mistake, right? So he's adding that fraudulent intent element. Um, perhaps. The way I see it is, again, back to the spectrum of accident or lack of education on the one end of the spectrum and intent on the other end or reasonable inference of intent. Um, I think the disclosures were at this end of the spectrum. They, they alleged or argued sort of a, a pervasive uh, course of conduct in overbilling these new and established patient visits. Um, so the fact that Dr. Zorn had told Dr. Grant you should bill at a higher level, um, I'm not sure is evidence of his intent as much as it is evidence of his course of practice from which we can infer intent through that, trans through that conversation, sure, but also through the disclosures. Well, was there more to it? Was there, you know... Him telling him to bill at the higher one and him saying, well, I don't think that's appropriate. Him saying, well, just do it anyway. Now, was there that kind of testimony? Um, I believe you've summarized the, the um, Dr. Grant's testimony. Yeah. 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 Um, and this public disclosure bar applies not only to the claims that the district court found liability on, um, which are the code 99205, initial patient visits, it would apply to the codes that are on cross-appeal as well, 99204, 215, 214, um, for which the district court found um, no liability because there weren't records submitted at the trial uh, level. Um, unless the court has more questions on the public disclosure bar, I'd like to touch on the Eighth Amendment excessive fines issue um, with my remaining time. Um, the due process clause, or well, the Eighth Amendment, uh, the Eighth Amendment's excessive fines clause applies to the treble damages and statutory penalties component of False Claims Act damages. I would like to ask you about that, Counsel. Sure. Uh, as far as I'm able to determine, this is a question of first impression in this circuit, and uh, as to whether the excessive fines clause applies in a non-intervened case, could you address that? Um, sure, and, and on the non-intervened case, I think it is. Um, Aleph um, states that in an intervened case, the excessive fines clause applies. Um, there's some out-of-circuit authority indicating that for the same reason, um, uh, the excessive fines clause applies in a non-intervened case. I think it's just one circuit. Isn't it the 11th Circuit? Um, I'll take your word for that. I don't have it at my fingertips, but I believe so. But the analysis would be the same. The government stands to benefit from the recovery. Um, and um, um, so 
the due process clauses test for excessive punitive damages is the standard under a left for excessive fines on the in the false claims context the Supreme Court has set a four to one ratio is sort of pushing the limits of constitutionality on punitive damages a ratio of punitive to compensatory damages in this circuit a ten to one ratio is is the outer boundary with the exception of either de minimis compensatory damages or extremely reprehensible conduct the Andrzejczyk case was discussed in the briefing it was actually brought up by dr. Grant first in Andrzejczyk well Andrzejczyk involved a cult leader who for a period of years systematically physically and emotionally abused minors which this court appropriately considered to be extremely reprehensible conduct but for which it assigned a four to one ratio in this case the district court assigned a 75 to 1 ratio of treble damages and statutory penalties I candidly I think it was a math error by the district court because it said it was intending to reduce the penalties to a 25 to 1 ratio but failed to recognize that it had already trebled the actual damages yeah as I understand part of your argument is that the treble damages are partly compensatory and partly punitive and the district court failed to sort that out right yes well kind of on the wouldn't you have to sort that out before you applied any ratio yes and I think the court did not sort that out so let's assume you're right where would that leave us are we to try to figure that out are we to remand that to the district court to try to figure out what the punitive and compensatory part is and what the appropriate ratio is sure what sort of remedy are you seeking well it's a de novo review I think this court can can sort that out itself and if the court looks to the Drakeford versus Tomey Fourth Circuit case I think that provides a good roadmap for how to sort the compensatory and punitive damages out essentially it's a math problem the amount of the treble damages allocated to the relator in a false claims case would be compensatory and the balance would be punitive so under that analysis we still have almost a 50 to 1 ratio in this case which is excessive and what why is the percentage that the relator gets why should that be considered compensatory well because it's part of the I think the Drakeford analysis was that not that it is compensatory because it doesn't go to the government but it's not punitive it goes to the relator right okay right but women go ahead and finish the answer though why why should that be considered compensate I know it compensates the relator but in this analysis of what is punitive and what is compensatory well sure I candidly I'd love for the court here to say it's not compensatory because that changes the ratio to my clients benefit but I'm conceding that there is authority that says it's compensatory I think by virtue of it being part of the cost of doing business in a false claims case which is giving some of the some of the damages award to the relator with that I'll reserve my remaining time for rebuttal thank you mr. Marty thank you mr. Libri thank you 
May it please the court. Counsel. My name is Derek Labrie. <clears throat> I'm here on behalf of Relator Dr. Stephen Grant, Relator for the Fraud Against the United States and State of Iowa Governments, performed by Dr. Zorn. I want to pick up where the court and Mr. Marty left off on this uh, excessive fines clause and the distinction between the due process clause and the excessive fines clause, because that distinction does matter. Here, what the district court found was pervasive and egregious fraud against both the governments of the United States as well as the state of Iowa. The relief prescribed is by statute. That statute, that the statutory relief is hitched to the Federal Civil Penalties Inflation Adjustment Act. The court, in awarding the civil penalty, varied downward from that statutory relief and undercalculated the civil penalty. Appellants want that court to be varied down even further. That's not what the Constitution demands. <clears throat> the test under the excessive fines so what, clause... What's the, what is the error of the district court? Where did the court go wrong in your view? Thank you, Your Honor. There are two errors. The first is a statutory interpretation piece. There's a regulation that uh, applies the Civil Penalties Inflation Act, uh, Adjustment Act, and the court never adjusted for any claim before November 2nd of 2015. So you're saying inflation should have bumped it higher? Correct, by about $370,000. From there, the district court perceived an obligation to apply a ratio, but of course, the Eighth Amendment never requires a ratio. But didn't the district court also err with the argument that they raise, which is in order to, when you go to calculate the percentage, you have to determine how much is compensatory and not all of the treble damages, which is what the district court used, are compensatory. So isn't there a problem? I mean, I get your inflation argument, but isn't there also a problem based on their argument? Respectfully, Your Honor, I, I disagree, and I think it's important to appreciate that the district court took a careful, measured view and a calculation of the statutory penalty. And uh, as to the distinction between compensatory and not, this has been resolved by the Brecky case. The Brecky case says when, when you're doing the multiplier, that's compensatory. It's compensatory because the government had to conduct some investigation. In this case, it conducted civil investigative demands, sent those to Dr. Zorn. Dr. Zorn responded. The government had to pour over records. Uh, the government had to facilitate a, a pending False Claims Act uh, case. To, at the district court level, and so there is a compensatory aspect, and that's what Brecky stands for. Mr. Marty cites to I'm sorry, a compensatory aspect of what? Of the trebling, excuse me. But isn't there also a punitive? Only because because to get to treble, you treble the compensatory damages, right? Well, uh, that's not what Brecky held, and Aleph makes clear that you need uh, in order to invoke punitives in order to invoke the excessive fines clause, it needs the trebling needs to be, quote, in combination with civil penalties. So the civil penalties are the trigger. And this comes from uh, 1871 Supreme Court precedent. I believe it's Stockton. It's cited in the briefs. Um, where, where this trebling, this doubling, this quadrupling, when it's a, done by a ratio like that, it's treated as compensatory. Whereas the excessive fines clause is only invoked allegedly under a civil penalty analysis. To the court's good point, um, in a non-intervened case, where, where is the excessive fines clause violation? Um, and, and that's the distinction between the due process clause and the excessive fines clause. Under the excessive fines clause, the United States Supreme Court precedent, 
Bajikajian, says we look to the statute first. Well, let's talk about that first. The non-intervened case, I understand the relator gets a higher percentage, but still the bulk of it goes to the government, right? That's correct, but it's not the government. It is a private citizen, and that's why we have, I believe it's the... Well, the percentage that goes to your client, right, is a private citizen. The remainder goes to the government. Sure, but that doesn't address the Bajikajian standard for the excessive fines clause. And so how we're distributing this troubling and how we're distributing this punitive civil penalty, it doesn't matter under Bajikajian. The first step is we look to the statute. The very first step and the most important step is we look to the statute. And here the statute's spoken on both those grounds. It says we treble because that's treated as compensatory under longstanding 1871 Supreme Court precedent. And we look to the statute on the civil penalty because the test under the excessive fines clause is merely one of reasonableness. And reasonableness, Congress has spoken on that. We defer to Congress. In fact, Bajikajian says we give substantial deference to Congress's statutory relief in this respect. The second component, the secondary component of the excessive fines clause is reprehensibility. And the district court found egregious conduct here, found contriving diagnoses to facilitate transfer to a cell phone business, contriving diagnoses to facilitate upcoding, billing these highest level codes. And yet, counsel, it was economic harm, not physical harm that was involved, wasn't it? Disagree, respectfully, Your Honor. I think the problem is Dr. Zorn's conduct shackled his patients to a chronic lifelong diagnosis with a chronic lifelong durable medical equipment prescription, which that patient now has to live with. In fact, Dr. Grant credibly testified at trial, and the district court credited the same, that there were instances where Dr. Grant had to treat Dr. Zorn's patients because Dr. Zorn was not adequately treating the presenting problem. And so there is an economic component, certainly, fraud against the government, loss of the public fisc, all reasons to have a substantial punitive component, substantial penalty. But there's also physical harm to his patients through these false diagnoses and shackling them for life with a chronic lifelong prescription that many found incompatible, which is why Dr. Grant testified on that point. Even with a finding of reprehensibility, are there cases where we've approved 25 to 1? There are several, Your Honor. I'll start with the Eighth Circuit. There's a Grabinski case where we've approved 27 to 1. There's Adeli, that's how it's pronounced, 24.75 to 1. Both of those were punitive damages under the Due Process Clause, again, not under Excessive Fines Clause. Importantly, when we're looking at the Excessive Fines Clause, again, we go back to the statute. We accord substantial deference to Congress. And that's what the district court started to do here before she buried below what the statute requires. It's important to appreciate, again, that this was a very measured calculation the district court undertook. There were just two errors. She perceived a ratio that doesn't exist. Every case, Baltazar, Toomey, Supreme Court precedent, Gore, TXO, Bajikasian, they all say, we don't do ratios. We don't do ratios 
because that's not what the Constitution demands. The text of the Constitution is one of reasonableness, and that's what we apply. And so it, I think it's TXO says circumstances where you have a jury with biases and passions and prejudices uh, are, quote, significantly different than when Congress has made a legislative choice. Here we have the latter. We have a legislative choice. We have to accord deference to that. Yeah, do I understand this right, that the, the actual out-of-pocket loss to the government here that was proven and accepted by the district court was about $86,000? I, I think that's correct, Your Honor, but it's important to remember. And the civil penalty is about a little less than $6.5 million? I think that's correct, Your Honor, but it's important to remember that the uh, the finding of a part of a larger fraud scheme, and this is to me, this is TXO, the, when you have a larger fraud scheme, low compensatory damages, the, the punitive, if you will, that the penalty should be higher. And here we have zero dollars to Medicaid, though we found false claims, zero dollars to TRICARE, though we found false claims, zero dollars for these uh, contrived sleep apnea diagnoses, and, and so we have a really low compensatory damages. What we really have is, uh, excuse me, a really low, yeah, really low compensatory damages. What we have is a three to one ratio. We have three um, uh, programs worth of fraud, Medicare, Medicaid, and TRICARE for civil penalty compared to just one program of compensatory damages, and that's Medicare. And so it, it's difficult for uh, appellants to suggest that um, that is, is there a case that has approved 75 times larger civil penalties? There are several, Your Honor. There's a United States Supreme Court case that says it's Haslip. It's a 200 to 1. And it's important to remember in Haslip, the Supreme Court reminded that we're not just looking at the actual harm, we're looking at the potential harm. And the potential harm here is codes that the district court credited were fraudulent, credited that this medical uh, record keeping through the use of the template, was fraudulent, but did not find liability for because she perceived an obligation to review the medical records, which, again, wouldn't tell you anything because they were already deemed fraudulent. And so we have a three-to-one ratio between what we're looking at for punitives, what we're looking at for compensatory, which inflates it, makes it uh, seem higher than it is. We have uh, obstructive sleep apnea diagnoses and compounding return visits that are not credited, and we have these other codes that were not credited because the district court viewed an obligation to review medical records, which she already determined would have been fraudulent in any event. And so it's difficult to say that uh, th there is no reprehensibility here when, when the district court, in her careful, measured 88-page trial order, found otherwise. That, that's a fact-finding. This, this court should not disturb, particularly under the Bajikajian standard, where we defer to Congress, particularly under the uh, Andrisic's definitions of reprehensibility as referenced by Bajikajian, as referenced by TXO and by Gore. Um, so the district court erred in varying downward when there was no obligation to do so. Every court has, that has confronted the issue has rejected a mathematical bright line rule, rejected a ratio application. This court should not be the first to defect on that ground. Um, it's also uh, move, moving towards, towards the uh, 
additional codes that the district court declined to find liability on, declined to find damages on. The Supreme Court last term said, quote, what matters for an FCA case is whether the defendant knew the claim was false. That's shoot. That's shoot from, from this year. Uh, nowhere in appellant's brief, nowhere in appellant's argument have uh, appellants demonstrated where that was in the CMS letters, first of all. But secondly, why this finding of fraudulent documentation underlying each code does not confer liability for the False Claims Act. He knowingly frauded the medical records to inflate the code. He billed that code. These codes are in established patient visits, 99215, 99214. The underlying fraudulent documentation falsified the medical necessity, rendered it a false code, a knowing false code. So the district court should have accorded uh, additional liability and damages on that ground. What evidence was uh, offered as to those other codes? Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, Dr. Zorn's template, where he he input um, he, he input physical examination components that could not physically be performed in the exam rooms. He said he was doing abdominal palpations. You have to be in the supine position, lying on your back to do that. There's only a, a love seat in in the exam room. There is no room to do a supine position, abdominal palpation. District court found and credited that. District court found and credited other items in this template were unnecessary. Uh, medically, which is the statutory requirement in order to bill Medicare and Medicaid. And so the underlying documentation itself is fraudulent. The, I suppose the better question is, what benefit would looking at this fraudulent documentation do in determining whether the code is accurate or not? Because what's documented is not what occurred. It can't be. And the district court found that. And so what would looking at those documentation records do for liability. So to answer your question specifically, the fact that Chief Judge Rose found and credited the testimony that all of the, the medical examinations that were conducted were conducted fraudulently is sufficient to establish liability on those uh, 99215s and 99214s, particularly when those are the only codes Dr. Zorn built. Well, counsel, you getting low on time, did you wish to respond to the public disclosure bar arguments? Thank you, Your Honor. I appreciate the opportunity. Um, the court is right to, uh, to look towards Scienter because as uh, defense counsel even wrote in resistance to Dr. Grant's affirmative motion for summary judgment, there is a considerable difference between claims that may have been encoded incorrectly under ambiguous guidelines and fraudulent claims for purposes of the False Claims Act. Defense counsel acknowledges that. Defendants, Dr. Zorn, acknowledged there is a distinction. This was a case about Scienter. It was a case about Scienter because Dr. Zorn, that's what he challenged. He said, it wasn't, it wasn't knowing fraud. I just needed additional education. It's not what the district court found. In fact, what the uh, CMS education letters are, they, they, they spell it out. You, you will not see... Um, the word audit anywhere in those letters. What you will see is the word education under the Social Security didn't, Act. Didn't the January 2018 letter, though, broach the subject of fraud? It broached the subject of, of uh, overbilling. It broke the, broached the subject of he's billing a lot of fives. This is, this is problematic. Now, it doesn't broach the, 
the, uh, the actual scienter piece. It doesn't say this is fraudulent. It says these were billed wrong. And that's one of the essential pieces. I think it's uh, Rabushka versus Crane is the case that says you need all essential elements of the claim to be publicly disclosed. Here, we don't have a right channel, but more importantly, and where the district court uh, fact found, is we don't have a, a, a disclosure of all the essential elements. In fact, the case law in this circuit is the mere presentation of the subject matter of the transactions is insufficient to implicate the affirmative defense. The mere subject matter, the, the mere disclosure of the subject matter is not enough. You need all of the essential elements. And this is, you can see this in uh, the Rabushka of Ukraine case, but it's also in the Minnesota Association of Nurse Anesthetists case, Alina Health. In that case, they said you need both the representations and why that representation is false. Here, we only have one of those. We only have, he billed a five. We don't even know that they're false yet, let alone whether they're knowingly false, whether they're frauded. Um, and, and so that scienter piece is important. Defense uh, appellants uh, don't mention Baltasar, which is a miscoding case. It's an upcoding case, and Baltasar stands for the proposition that when you have allegations of a lot of coding, it's not necessarily a public disclosure. Baltasar found there was no public disclosure because there was no disclosure of scienter. Holloway, the same thing. To uh, uh, Your Honor's point earlier, the import of the letters are education. And Holloway says when the, um, uh, when the recommended action is education, not investigation, we don't have a public disclosure. We don't have disclosure of our elements. We don't have the scienter. Um, Appellants raised the point that Dr. Grant assumed or based his claims off of these, these letters. It's simply not true. The court had Exhibit 22, and I think defense counsel, appellant counsel, acknowledged. He did attach him to his complaint, though. Is that right? There were two of 14 attachments. Uh, I mean, th there was a plethora of others. Uh, the, the petition wasn't just a four-paragraph petition that appellants put in their brief. It was an extensive 90-paragraph petition with 14 attachments. It wasn't just the letters. In fact, there, was, there, were far other, there were far more other pieces. There was the pressure that Dr. Zorn uh, exerted on Dr. Grant to bill more, to refer more to his sister company, Iowa CPAP. There was the template. There was the fact that Dr. Zorn collapsed the, the patient appointment time slot such that it wasn't long enough to satisfy the 05 codes, nor the 15s, nor the 14s. Um, and there are also physical examination components allegedly documented in the medical records to support these fraudulent codes, which could not have been done, or, and or were not medically necessary. And this is all the district court's fact-finding. This court doesn't disturb the district court fact-finding on no authority, um, nor do I think it would be appropriate here. Um, lastly, I'd repeat that this is no longer jurisdictional. The public disclosure bar is an affirmative defense from the 2010 amendment, and, and the analysis that appellants have provided is uh, out of date, to, to use a better phrase. So in, in conclusion, I know my time's running out, Dr. Grant would respectfully submit the district court erred in varying downward from the statutory relief, and the Constitution makes no requirement to do so. 
and erred in not providing liability and damages on codes that she already found fraudulent. The district court's fact-finding in this case was measured, careful, and correct, and should not be disturbed. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Labrie. Mr. Martin, your rebuttal. Briefly on the excessive fines clause, counsel mentioned, I think he said contrived diagnoses. They used that phrase in the brief. That was 404B evidence at the district court level. ConAgra v. Williams cautions us not to use or to only use conduct that's related to the claims at issue when considering reprehensibility or reasonableness. Counsel mentioned TXO products. That's sort of the standard potential harm case where the court can consider the monetary value of potential harm in making the reasonableness assessment. This is not a potential harm case. On the public disclosure bar, counsel mentioned Rabushka and the essential elements of the transaction requirement for triggering of the bar. Rabushka and other cases, in those cases, the courts grapple with the phrase allegations or transactions in the public disclosure bar language. When talking about a transaction, it's not, for instance, it wouldn't be sufficient if there was a public report that said, Dr. Zorn is a sleep medicine physician. He bills Medicare for patient encounters. Is that a transaction? Sure. But is that a transaction that triggers the bar? No. Because we have to add to that that those bills are false. That's the X and the Y from Rabushka from which Z, fraud, can be reasonably inferred. With respect to Baltazar and Holloway that counsel mentioned, those two cases involve reports of industry-wide compliance problems without singling out a particular defendant or offender. Those courts found that the public disclosure bar didn't apply to particular defendants who weren't identified in those disclosures. That's not this case. These letters were directed at Dr. Zorn and at his specific billing practices. Counsel talked about the other billing codes for which the district court found no liability by virtue of no actual patient records being admitted at trial, no patient billing records associated with those records, and no expert medical testimony as to whether those codes were billed accurately or not. Counsel sort of seemed to intimate that kind of fraud in the air was good enough for those. I'll point the court to Joshi v. St. Luke's Hospital. It's a 9B decision where the court says at the pleading stage, a relator has to plead representative examples of false claims being submitted to satisfy the heightened pleading requirement under 9B. Certainly if representative examples are required at the pleading stage, it's not unreasonable that we expect them to be introduced at the proof stage at trial. Unless the court has any further questions, I'll yield the rest of my time. Thank you, Mr. Martin. Thank you also, Mr. Labrie. The court appreciates both counsel's participation and argument before the court this morning. We'll take the case
So the district court did not uh, did not err in finding no liability on those codes. And again, those codes are subject to the public disclosure bar, just the same as the codes the district court found liability on. Um, so in summary, the court should reverse the district court on liability on 99205 under the public disclosure bar. Um, it should also reverse the district court on codes outside of the sampling. We didn't, there was a lot to cover here and we didn't talk about sampling. Um, um, should reverse on liability on all codes outside of the sample that the medical experts reviewed. Should affirm the district court on the codes for which evidence wasn't submitted at trial. Should affirm the district court on punitive damages in the retaliation context. And should uh, substantially reduce the treble damages and penalties in any event under the excessive fines clause. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Martin. Thank you also, Mr. Labrie. The court thanks both counsel for your participation in argument before the court this morning. We'll continue to study the briefing and render decision in due course. Thank you. Council